today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There have been serious concerns about, uh, well, personal security, of course, for elected officials at all levels of government, but especially the federal scene over the last little while, and and even people outside of government, including bureaucrats. Well, the RCMP is responding, and they are going to be forming a brand new unit to protect ministers, top bureaucrats, uh, or threats of political violence that seem to be on the increase. And we'll delve into that just after 10.30 this morning. Uh, right now, a lot of talk uh, between Canada, the U.S., and, uh, well, the Five Eyes and other nations, uh, including, of course, uh, New Zealand and Australia, uh, about what's going on in the South China Sea and what's happening in, in that part of the world. And it's because China, of course, is flexing their mes- muscle. Uh, to a certain extent, and we know about the ongoing threats. I mean, ask the Chinese, the Japanese government, and or others about uh, about their concern about what could be happening down there. Well, uh, there's an interesting uh, op-ed piece that's written in uh, theconversation.com that addresses this, uh, and the headline is "NATO should tread carefully in Southeast Asia, where memories of colonialism still linger." Uh, it's a, an interesting perspective and one that I think an awful lot of us may have overlooked. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Sean Nareen, who is a professor of international relations and political science at St. Thomas University and joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, I, I appreciate your asking me to be on. Well, the historical perspective is is big here, uh, and and I guess you know we tend to overlook the, uh, this an awful lot of the times about what happened in the past. Uh, every now and then, we've seen this, uh, you know, with, in in other parts of the world where they say, "Wait a second, uh, do you know what past generations of your country did to us, or the impact that it had on us?" And and there was a presence, and colonialism is something that, uh, especially here in Canada, we don't seem to ha- to have a full grasp on. Uh, how long are the memories of the people that were impacted by that down in 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 the southwest part of the world? Well, I think, Bill, it's important to recognize that outside of the Western world, I think it's fair to say that colonialism, the experience of colonialism, is the single most important thing that defines how, how people think about the past and, and even understand what's happening in, in their modern day context. So it's never really gone away. I mean, the West has never dealt with it. But, you know, if you've had the experience of being occupied and controlled and, and meant and, uh, made to be, uh, feel inferior to people for a very long period of time, um, it has a lasting impact. Well, we've certainly seen that in India, uh, you know, because of what happened, of course, with the, with the, the UK or England, as it was at that time. Uh, and some of the U.S. policies, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick, manifest destiny that, uh, they, there was a mindset among the powerful nations of, of bygone days that they they had not just a duty, but they thought the right uh, to be able to intercede wherever they wanted and 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 fix it the way that they thought it should be fixed. Yes, that's that, that's that's absolutely true. And I mean, to some extent, uh, you have to ask, or at least I would ask, uh, to what extent that mindset is still in play. You know, because right now, I think the Western world feels very strongly that it understands, you know, how to establish uh, a working political system, how to establish, um, um, you know, the, the economies that work. And if you're not basically a a Western style liberal democratic state, then there's something wrong with you. You haven't haven't met that bar. And I think that really both oversimplifies the problems that the modern world faces, uh, particularly outside the West and frankly, even inside the West. And it also uh, really, um, it's a really sanitized version of Western history that underlies that whole mindset. Well, as you point out in the op-ed piece, though, Professor, and I think this is is 
very worth noting, especially we need to look at at some of the the, the concerns that the that NATO has organized. Uh, that there have been examples where what you've just described here ha- is happening, uh, where they're taking a much more proactive. A role in in some international situations, uh, some would suggest stepping over that line that they should not step over uh, to intercede and 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 you know, whether it's in Libya and you mentioned a number of other examples uh, where NATO seems to be well not being reactive but proactive in in some of these instances. Yeah, and I mean um, the the example the, the situation with NATO is complicated, right? Because in the sense that NATO has seen itself as a defensive alliance for a very long time, and for most of its history, you could certainly make that argument very clearly. Um, but of course, after the Cold War ended, NATO became active. You know, it, it, its first um, adventures were in Bosnia, and of course, then later on, it got involved in Afghanistan, though with the support of the UN in that case. And then, of course, there was the intervention in uh, Li- Libya. And, and I think it's really Libya and, and Afghanistan, too. But Libya, that really has a lot of people concerned because there, NATO's motivations became very suspect once once you once uh, investigations into what went on went were actually carried out. So it's it, NATO sort of this sense, you know, that Western colonialism hasn't entirely gone away and that with the end of the Cold War, it may be reasserting itself. Uh, that's something that many people in Africa feel. Um, now, the Asia-Pacific situation, uh, the Indo-Pacific situation is a little bit different and more complicated, but I think the same argument could be made. Well, and, and to that point, let's let's talk a little bit about that about about the the feeling that it's had, and, and as you pointed out in the piece, I mean, there's I don't think too many people you know that are still harboring resentment, but but they're aware of their history anyway, even if they're you know they're not being guided by the by the, the concerns. Uh, but for the 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 presence of NATO and some of these other alliances that are starting to be formed now uh, to try to deal with the growing threat of China. Uh, how are they reacting to that, Professor? I mean, they're they are they're right there. This is their backyard, so they are concerned about China and Chinese aggression. But and and they know that they need some friendships and they need some allies and they need somebody who's got their back. But are, are, is there still some trepidation about actually, you know, forming alliances and or relying on on, on NATO in situations like this? Uh, yeah, I think there absolutely is. I mean, and it kind of depends, of course, on the countries you're talking about. As I said, as I said the Indo-Pacific region is complicated. Um, I focus specifically on Southeast Asia and the peace because that's my area of specialization. Mm-hmm. And the Southeast Asian countries have come out very clearly and said they don't want a uh, – they, they, they want to reduce the, the, the tensions in the region and they feel that um, d- d- diplomacy – and conversation and economic ties are the way to go. And so they don't want a, a uh, military confrontation taking place. And for them, it matters for a number of different reasons. One of them, of course, is that their economic prosperity actually depends on China doing well, right? So so they're tied into China in a way that many other countries, well, frankly, many countries in the world are, but m- even more deeply, even more intimately than most other places. And so their desire not to have conflict is real. Now, they are concerned, some of them are concerned with China being, being as you say, aggressive. And there's no doubt that China has been aggressive, though though it is more complicated than that as well. I keep using the word complicated. I guess I, I should emphasize these issues are complex, right? There's history, there's politics, there's individual states' perspectives on them, which make things it's, – it's not amenable to a simple sort of, of explanation. But putting that aside, um, they – you know – 
I think the thing with Chinese aggression is this. Yeah, China's being aggressive in certain parts of the South China Sea. But on the other hand, if you fairly compare Chinese aggression and how it's acting in the world to how the Western world has acted, not just in historical terms, but even in contemporary terms, um, the Chinese really aren't that bad. If it, the worst you can say is that uh, China is stirring things up in the South China Sea, well, that's not really that much by a global comparison. You know, the last time China used military force in the South China Sea was about 1974-75. You know, we've had 40 years of, of relative, um, not peace exactly, but at least not the use of force. Nobody's died in that particular area. Whereas, you know, compare that to the United States and the war on terror. And, you know, the Watson Institute at the Brown University just came out with a study that said when you look at all the wars on terror that have taken place since 2001, 4.6 million people have died. Uh, you know, and that, that's everything. That's both directly and indirectly as a result of these conflicts and all the economic and other kinds of, of instability that they cause. So, you know, China getting getting messy in the South China Sea compared to literally millions of people dying because of a Western war, um, there's no comparison. I think that perspective is something we need to keep in mind. Uh, is there a concern, though, about, uh, as you say, that, and I don't know if anybody's expecting the, the Chinese Navy or the Chinese Army to simply invade. Well, there's some concern, I guess, about that in Taiwan, but but in, in other areas. Because we've heard stories, and I'm sure you, you you've seen these as well, Professor, of, of Chinese, shall we say, incursions, you know, with some of these island states, these tiny islands in, in, in the South Pacific, where they simply say, by the way, we're going to plant some ships here. We're going to, you know, and we're going to have troops over here. You know, we're doing some training exercises. And, and, and it's kind of growth by stealth. In other words, they don't make a big deal about it, but it's that's just one other area where China all of a sudden has influence uh, over that particular nation. And I know the United States is concerned about that. As, as we know, you know, the G7 meeting in, in, in Japan, uh, Joe Biden wanted to go down there. That was he was scheduled to go down to some of those those uh, places down there and say, look, at, we're, we're your friend, too. You know, you rely on us. And sadly, he couldn't do it because of what was going on in the U.S. Congress. But there does seem to be a concern about how China is growing. Uh, they're not doing it militarily necessarily, but they're doing it by influence. They are, as you say, you know, an economy that everybody is relying on right now. Yeah, I guess I, I, I don't want to minimize uh, the, the potential concerns with the growth of Chinese influence and power. Um, but at the same time, you know, by, by, by many economic measures, China is the biggest economy in the world, mm -hmm. um, substantially larger than the U.S. economy by, by, by PPP. Um, so the question for me, in part, is why shouldn't such an enormous economy, an enormous country and an enormous market have political influence. You know, I think a bigger part of the problem, see, at the same time, we're looking at things, you know, we, we, you know um, China really doesn't have many military bases outside of its, its own borders. I think it has one in Djibouti. Um, it has, you know, um, it, it's worked out some arrangements with the Solomon Islands and other places, but yeah. the United States literally has 750 military bases and 300 of them are in the Asia Pacific. So, so a, a part of what I would question is why we accept one set of countries having enormous military and economic power, and yet we're so concerned about one country just beginning to assert some power that you could argue is entirely proportional. Um, in fact, actually, not 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 that that commensurate with its actual size is just starting to do that. And so, I think we've got to examine those those questions for ourselves. 
You know, like one of my arguments would be that the biggest problem we've had right now with China is that rather than recognizing that we need to make room for it in the existing international system, um, the G7 led by the U.S. is very much trying to to contain it, to pen it in. And why you would be trying to contain the biggest country in the world, you know, by population, by economic size, it seems to be a very dangerous and frankly foolish thing to do when accommodation and recognizing that reality seems to me a much more prudent course of action. But is it because of the concern about intentions? I mean, they're growing, and yes, you, you, you can't, you know, they're the elephant in the room. I mean, you know, they, they dominate. Even as you said, some of these smaller countries or island states uh, that you just referenced, I mean, they still rely on China for economic ties. And, and so does the United States, and so does Canada, and, and yeah. as they all do, and certainly so does Russia. Uh, but I, I, the concern I'm hearing from an awful lot of people right now, Professor, is they always seem to take the other side. I mean, you know, they're supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine. They're, uh, they're, you know, we know that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there's supposed to be, uh, you know, some some blockages and economic sanctions that are being in place, uh, the Chinese government is still negotiating with pipelines with the Russians, etc. cetera. Uh, in other words, we feel as if they're aligned with the wrong side. And, and that, I think, probably, and as a matter of fact, I think positively colors our mindset about, about their intentions and where they're going and, and how they may use or some people would think abuse that power. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But but again, I'd have to ask, like, why we think their intentions, because we're making assumptions about their intentions, right? But you're right, they're, they're on the wrong side in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, at least from our perspective. Now, they have a different perspective. And one of the things I point out in the article is that outside the Western world, when you look at the Russian-Ukraine war, most of the world actually th- accepts the Russian argument that they felt that NATO NATO's expansion was a real threat to them. Now, you can debate whether or not that's true, but still it's true, it is true that most of the world thinks the Russians had at least a point. And so the Chinese are coming at it from that perspective. And one point I'd like to make about this, you know, as we get more hostile towards China, they question our intentions. And one of the things that's happening with the Russia-China situation is that as the G7 becomes more hostile to China, China feels that it needs to side more strongly with Russia because it's being pushed into that camp. So it may have had a disposition in that direction anyway, but it has to make its ties even stronger because for it, the nightmare scenario would be being left alone to face the West all by itself with with Russia basically taken off the board. And so I think intentions go both ways. And part of the point I try to make in, in the piece is that to many people in the world, the period of Western domination of the world never ended. You know, you know, there there may have been direct colonialism that may have ended, but indirect colonialism has always continued. And and from that point of view, the real threat that China poses it has nothing to do with democracy or human rights or things like that. The real threat that it poses is that it's a non-Western state that isn't controllable by the West. I think the Chinese see it this way, and that's part of what they're responding to. They look at Western expansion, you know, the increasing uh, American. Uh, um, uh, presence in the Asia Pacific, increasing hostility towards them, you know, on economic and technological grounds. And they think, well, that's the problem. The dominant powers want to make sure that they remain dominant. This is, uh, 
almost I know we're just about out of time here. It's it's almost like part two of of, of the Cold War. I mean, you know, back in, in the fifties and sixties it was it was the Russian concern about, you know, overtaking everything and, and, and exerting influence. And now it seems to be China and the US uh, that seem to be butting heads about stuff like this. And and the battle goes on for the hearts and minds of these people, doesn't it, Professor? And uh India being a classic example of that. You know, the uh, the US wants to exert influence and trade uh, increases with with India. India has a relationship with the Chinese. Of course they do. They're in the same part of the world. Uh, they have a relationship with Russia that we're not crazy about. I mean, we're told that they're still buying arms from Russia, and that's helping to finance the Russian effort in Ukraine. So you know, there are some things here that sometimes we kind of turn a blind eye to, uh, but those are the realities that the rest of the world is also looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And now with India, I would say India has its own game. India is its own player, you know, and yeah. its, its relationship with China is both hostile as well as, as, you know, they cooperate in different ways, as you point out. They have a very different perspective, but their, their different perspective is shared by many other countries in the world. And I think, you know, we in the West have a very narrow view, but we keep forgetting we only constitute 15% of the world's population. And other countries in the world, they're 85% and they have their own historical and other points of view. Now, your point about the Cold War, I think, is really interesting and relevant, but it's really important to note that, in my opinion, we're, we're, we're as responsible for antagonizing China as, as anything else. And I don't think this Cold War, even though we certainly seem to be heading in that direction, it's totally unnecessary. I think that's the biggest tragedy, that the Chinese actually have a stake in the existing economic system, at least. They, they're the number one trading country in the world. War is not good for trade. Their own economic survival and prosperity depends on relative peace. Outside of their own region, putting aside the South China Sea and Taiwan, China actually is a force for positive gain. You know, they've been a peacemaker in the Middle East. They're helping develop Africa. Um, so it's very complicated, and I think we have to recognize that on the biggest issues of the day, particularly climate change, we need Chinese cooperation in order to deal with these things. And I mm -hmm. think that I, I, I tend to think it's the Western world that's pushing this conflict and this uh, tension much more than the Chinese are. I think if you look at it historically and from a perspective that says, okay, we're not preferencing the Western point of view, but we're trying to look at it from everyone's point of view, the Chinese, they've done some things badly. The Western world has done a lot of things badly for a very long time, and those things matter. Professor, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Pro Professor Sean Noreen from uh, St. Thomas University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.